I've thought much uh, concerning this podcast and how that I would begin it because it's been really burning in my heart over the last, especially over the last uh, number of years, but in particularly in the last couple of weeks, and how to, you know, effectively onboard uh, you, a listening audience, into the imagery of God's divine counsel. Um, this podcast, as you know, is, is going to be called Of Stars and Men. And before I begin, over, especially over the last nine months, of going through, I would say, probably one of the most dramatic and traumatic moments of my life and, and Kara's, including the kids and our ministry, I have been uh, tremendously blessed and touched by a number of, of leaders and pastors in our area. My heart has been uh, in so much need in a way uh, to have others come around and, 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 and love us. You know, we love to love, but we also love to be loved. Love to be loved. And and I'm not going to, uh, you know, feel bad about that. And I think that all of us were made up that way, and and I'm sure that you uh, feel that way likewise. We, we enjoy God the most when we realize that we see Him loving Himself through us, and then the emanation of God's glory is manifest through that love and we experience that love and then there's nothing better than coming into relationship with others who likewise love him and then we love one another and you know that is the greatest to me is how will they know that we are his disciples in that right we love one another um, if you know listening to this take and go into phase triple zero and listen to Potter's Clay because uh, that was with a, a wonderful family uh, uh, Daryl and Carla Fulham and uh, at their house with a, a group of uh, people and we went through Second Peter 1 together and just that revelation of what happens after you move through brotherly affection and Christian love. And uh, Peter will go on and say, make sure of your election and calling. And then he gets into, starts unpacking the Mount of Transfiguration in the glory of the man Jesus being uh, manifest and the brightness shining through in the darkness, the light of this Savior, our Lord. And I, I want you to listen to that, even if you take a time out on this, but so that you can understand where I'm coming from about Christian love and brotherly affection and where this path is going for all of us. With that said, these pastors have rallied around us in... I'm really big uh, in in the Lord. I've learned this on giving honor. And one of the things before I just launch into this podcast today is I want to give honor and I'm going to 
call some names out that have been a great blessing to us, uh, leadership in our area, in the Asheville area. And I just want to say their names, uh, how much they've touched me personally. Now, there are many other pastors and leaders that, you know, and families, I may not be mentioning this, but this is uh, where I want to give honor. My wife wants to give honor and bless. Uh, And I'm just going in alphabetical order. Thank you, Brad and Pamela Ames, uh, Timothy and Lori Brown, Stephen and Tara Birch, Tom and Beth Camacho, Sam and Eliza Fine, John and Cameron Harris, Nick and Tina Honorkamp, Cecil and Phyllis Jenkins, Jeff and Kelly Manning, Carol and Tammy Moffat Sr., Steve and Melinda Scroggs Sr., Dan and Eva Stewart, Henry and Wendy Todd. And I also want to give honor to two dear uh, families that have been in worship and blessed our family, Christopher and Rebecca Ford, Stephen and Jennifer Scroggs Jr. And then uh, two wonderful doctors that have just come alongside us and that we just love and respect and honor, uh, Tom and Laura Gross and Gus and Kelly Vickery. I want to say, some of the greatest people I've ever met, and and I, I love all of them from the bottom of my heart. I've seen darkness now, but I've seen the light of Jesus shine through these men and their wives. And my wife and I are so touched by you and your contribution to us. And we have many more friends and family of all of whom I could not entirely mention. But I was just impressed by the Holy Spirit going through this weekend. And I wanted to just, I want to see a rally. I want to see a brotherhood and sisterhood i want to see i want to see the kingdom of the lord come i want to see i want to see the blessing of jesus come and we need unity and and i pray that where there's been division that there will no longer be division among us but there will be unity uh, lord that your high priestly prayer will be answered uh, because you have called us all out of darkness into this glorious light. And I thank God, and particularly for these men, particularly who have spoke and they're supporting wives into my family and have have supported us and blessed us. And uh, again, thank you so much. Today we're going to get into uh, the the divine council imagery and the heavenly council. And I want to tell you kind of like a, an understanding that I'm in right now. And and hopefully this, this will help you, but it says in the Bible that this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Ephesians two, eight, nine says for by grace, are you saved through faith? It's a gift of God. It's not something that comes from us. If it was based on our works or effort, it would give us something to boast in. But this is God in eternity, the, the Father, 
intervening into the natural affairs of men through an elective grace to us, giving us the grace, giving us the faith to trust him and believe him and respond back to him. And so I have been under, you know, this 10 years with MZ Hop, uh, working out things with the Lord and earlier on finding out that uh, that there were these this understanding of of a uh, geography and and the the sh- the uh, shifting that goes on in regards to uh, moving from uh, uh, geographical areas in and around our regions and our states and in our nation and even in international affairs and relations. And that there was a capacity that God had designed man to come into where that they could basically inherit or come into an inheritance of things related to uh, uh, certain aspects of regions and, and geography. If, if you want something on the scripture about that, 2 Corinthians 10, uh, Paul will describe, uh, first of all, he gives this admonition, he says, it's not wise to compare ourselves among ourselves. Uh, and after he gets into this comparison phrases in, in 2 Corinthians 10, he goes on and he says he wants to enlarge his apostolicity to spread the gospel to greater regions. And, and he says this really interesting thing. He says to the people that he is ministering to that when their faith enlarges, it will cause an increase uh, in his uh, ability to move the gospel out into greater realms. And so uh, he had to learn to be faithful uh, with the individuals that were surrounding his life. But as he poured into them and as he had received grace from the Lord and he gave uh, through his preaching and teaching ministry, he gave to them and laid his life down. As their faith went up, he got a greater expansion. And I had come under this understanding years ago uh, and... There's going to be a podcast that you can listen to uh, related to what I'm describing here and about what this shifting of from a like a let's say like a, a local ministry to a regional ministry to a statewide ministry to a national ministry, even to a multinational ministry to an international ministry. And uh you know, we went through all these prophetic encounters with Jesus related to that until we got into the international motif with the Lord. And then something really interesting happened in our in our ministry, and I was kind of surprised about it. The Lord started to let me know that he was not only going to shake the earth, but he's going to shake the heavens. And this concept started to form in, in my understanding that there that we could overcome the world. Uh, but we also, there was an overcoming that had to do with the heavens. And, and so there, there's an overcoming of the world, even our faith that overcomes the world. Paul said in Galatians, he said that the world has nothing in me and I have nothing in the world. What was Paul saying? He was saying, the world has nothing that they see in me that they would find of value. 
And I don't see anything about the world system that I find of value. So when we're saying we're overcoming the world, we're meaning that the world system has become valueless to me. And that when the world reflects back on me, they say, you don't mean anything to me. You're, you're not what I'm looking for. And so he, they had nothing in him and he had nothing that he wanted to do with them. And then you know this verse, what shall a man gain if he gained the whole world and he lost his soul? But what should a man gain if he lost the whole world? What would he gain? And that question was put to me a number of years by the Lord. What would a man gain then if he lost the world? Well, I think that based off of just deductive reasoning, he would gain his soul. So we're in this we're in this relationship with with Abba, our Father, that Jesus' blood has paid for is being intervened by the Holy Spirit who's communicating through us and to us for uh, the purpose of overcoming the world so that we would gain our soul. And so uh, with this capacity that, that I'm speaking of now, now comes this understanding, though, that if we have, in effect, gained our soul and we have lost the world, well, for me, I thought in the pondering work I've, I've been in with the Lord, I thought, well, man, that's, that's, that's a lot to say. And that's a lot to announce. And I, you know, I thought that that's kind of the end of the journey, you know, in journeying with the Lord, you know, he takes you to said with Joshua, we've not been this way here too far. And you, you go and you move in faith with him and you, you see the prize and you think, or I did, the inheritance of the whole world and to overcome all the aspects of of the world, that would be the greatest thing a human being could gain. And I guess for years I had thought that that was the whole kit and caboodle until now. And that is the subject of my this podcast today that I'm introducing because, and, and please go listen to the Lucifer Appeal because it will really help you to understand uh, this, there are five aspects of space. There are five I will sections that Lucifer, when he failed, that he came through. And again, to repeat myself, you need to hear that Lucifer appeal and then read the notes section. In Isaiah 14, Lucifer is going to say, I will ascend into heaven. And that is the first I will. The second I will is I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. That is the second I will. The third I will is I will also sit on the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. And in particular, today's podcast is a focus. My my focus with you is going to be in that third I will uh, section. Now, the way I've overlaid these is, or the way I believe the Holy Spirit is, put a framework for me. There are five atmospheres that begin down at the surface level, uh, sea level, and they extend all the way into outer space. And those five atmospheres, the first one that you dwell in right now is called the troposphere. And 
And then the second one after the troposphere is the stratosphere. The third is the mesosphere. The fourth is the thermosphere. And the fifth is the exosphere. And, and what I want you to do in your mind is overlay the five eye wheels onto those five aspects of space. And so as we see number one, troposphere, I will ascend into heaven. Number two, stratosphere, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. And number three, I will, mesosphere, I will also sit on the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. And and then number four, which is thermosphere, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And number five, the exosphere, I will be like the Most High. This is what Lucifer said. Iniquity was found in him, and he was cast down uh, to the earth. And I believe that he has been in a plan to deceive humanity, especially in relationship with our Father, and um, and to cause confusion and chaos on the earth. I mean, and there's so much to be said about that. Let's jump into this podcast today. I believe I've got a fairly good introduction here. Um, what I'm, I'm really dealing with, and, and I, I want to bring out some works here that have come out uh, recently. I'm dealing with something that I would like to describe as something beyond, something that involves leadership, but let me just use some language like this from the Lord, like almost like a post-leadership mentality. Another one would be, and this is going to sound, you're just going to have to take it, post-master builder. And, and many of you that are in leadership are going to know exactly what I'm saying, especially church leadership, when I talk about master builder. But I'm talking about something here like post-master builder. And uh, there, there's many books, and I've, I've got some of them here that are on leadership, uh, like Stephen Covey's, uh, the Eighth Habit, John Maxwell, Five Le- Levels of Leadership, Alfred Lansing, Endurance endurance Concerning Shackleton's uh, Incredible Voyage. Winston Churchill, another, another great leader, uh, wrote Never Give In. Uh, John Wooden, Wooden on Leadership. Uh, Howard Schultz, um, in, in his work, it, it was Onward and How Starbucks Fought for Its Life. Piers Paul Reed wrote a book called Alive, the story of the Andes survivor. Daniel Gorman, Primal Leadership, Realizing the Power of Emotional Intelligence. Nicola Machiavelli, The Prince. Uh, Warren Bennis, On Becoming a Leader. And like uh, Doris Kearns uh, Goodman, uh, Team of Rivals. We're inundated with leadership books and leadership development, especially in senior leadership. As I begin to introduce this, I, I want to say that I don't know that, at least for me personally, and I, I believe that a lot of these works are excellent, but I don't think they're going to take you where you are meant to go, possibly. Especially, uh, they, they lay a good foundation, but when what we're talking about today is uh, deals with a Again, a post a post leadership or a post master building framework, um, one in which I'll have a podcast on this called Blank Slate, and it's going to explain how uh, leadership uh, functions with the Godhead 
and uh, you can listen to that when it comes out. So back to this heavenly council, because, and we're and we're going to begin to unpack this today. I'm I'm working out of a a writing by Paul B. Sumner, uh, where he makes some definition here of the council. Uh, the council is a symbolic ruling body consisting of God as the supreme monarch, with an assembly of supernatural servants gathered around his throne in a heavenly palace. When he uses the word symbolic, he's not implying that the council is not real. He's saying that the imagery is analogical or metaphorical and depicts uh, actual realities in the divine world. Put simply, uh, Yahweh is king and he commands his divine servants to do his will. But how did Israel know about this heavenly council? The Bible implies they knew from accounts of visionary visitations by prophets. And modern commentators call these visits throne visions. First-hand reports of a heavenly council in session. Not many visions occur in the Hebrew Bible, but they seem to be the wellspring for Israel's conception of God. So a question that comes to us, if, if there is a heavenly council, a divine council, and there's imagery re- related to it, and if it was so important to the biblical writers, was it also important to the Jews in the post-biblical times? And that is where we want to start to look at some evidence again today, because, and, and just to say this again so that we're on the same page, I'm particularly dealing with today, I will sit on the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. And this and this language of the mount of the congregation being the language of an assembly or a council that has been gathered together in the sides of the north. That Lucifer is, for some reason, acquiring or desiring to have the rulership or leadership over this divine council, one that is only superintended by Yahweh himself, that he superintends a council, and that that council is effectively in, uh, is happening right now. And, and so uh, let's look at uh, Psalms 82. Um, Elohim has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of Elohim, he holds judgment. Uh, in Psalms 89, we read, Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Yahweh, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to Yahweh? Who among the sons of God is like Yahweh? O God, greatly feared in the secret council of the holy ones, great and awesome above all that are around him. And you're familiar, I'm sure, with Job 1.6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh and the Satan. Satan is not a necessarily like a proper uh, noun. Satan actually means accuser. So um, in the Hebrew, it'll say the Satan. Uh, so that article, the, is put in front of Satan because he's saying the accuser 
Uh, Lucifer is his proper name, but thus Satan is a description of who he is. And so when it says that in Job 1, 6, it's saying, thus Satan also came among them. So he's a a court-appointed attorney, (laughs) a really good attorney, actually, Uh, maybe one of the best uh, attorneys. Uh, He's uh, up there, and he's very good at accusation. He knows what he's doing. And also, when we move down from there in Nehemiah 9.6, in the redeemed exiles from Babylon, praise God with these words, you are he, Yahweh alone. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their host. The heavenly host bows down before you. And so here again, we see uh, this host. Now, there are three terms for the council gathering. Adah, which means congregation, assembly, or company. It's also used for the congregation of Israel. Kohal, which means together, together. And it parallels the later Greek, ekklesia. And sod, which is a wonderfully rich word, it designates a king's inner circle, his closest friends and counselors who know his mind and discuss his plans. To participate in the sod of Yahweh meant profound privilege. In the Gospel of John, Yeshua is described as the one and only unique Son who resides on the bosom of the Father. In verse 18, it seems to reflect Hebrew sowed imagery. Yeshua knows best the mind of God because he has a unique place in the sowed, the divine sowed. Remember sowed, be in this place, that means that he participates uh, and resides in the bosom of the Father, but he participates in the king's inner circle. Daniel 7.10 mentions a heavenly court. The Aramaic noun, deny, signifies a council of judges, depicting God as a time-transcending judge sitting among other judges. Uh, you receive that image. So what are these these members and and titles? Well, they have there's several names for the titles or of the council. They are holy ones, spirits, messengers, ministers, servants, those on high, princes, and other names. The diversity suggests differing roles in their relationship to Yahweh in his diverse roles as king, judge, lord, and warrior. God's role as a warrior is revealed by his name, Lord of Hosts. Literally, he is the Yahweh of armies. And it is central to what has been called Zion theology, a constellation of doctrine that says God will protect the house of David and Jerusalem temple on Mount Zion with his heavenly armies. Now, Throughout the Hebrew, there are references to this heavenly council of the king's throne room, and they occur uh, in every portion of the uh, Hebrew Bible. You, you'll see it in Genesis 1, 26, 1 Kings 22, 19 through 23, and Psalms 89, which I've already alluded to, verses 5 through 7. It's also in the literary genre, like in Exodus 24, 9 through 10. The historical, 1 Kings 22, 19 through 23, the prophetic, Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, Jeremiah 23, 18 through 22. The poetic, in Job 1, 6 through 12. The liturgical, 
Psalms 103, 19 through 22. The wisdom literature, Job 15, 8. The visionary aspects, Ezekiel 1, Zechariah 3. And from the earliest, uh, it goes back to Exodus 15, Deuteronomy 32, Psalms 29. And to the latest dated materials, Nehemiah 9, 6, Daniel 7, 9 through 14. And so it, you're seeing that uh, it's showing not only the beginning moments of creation, and like in Genesis 1.26 and Job 38, 1-7, but all the way to the eschatological arrival of God's kingdom, his return, Daniel 7, 9-14. So we move along from that, and this council concept throws light on uh, these Genesis plurals. Uh, There are three passages in which God refers to us and our, or let us make Adam in our image. Behold, the Adam has become like one of us. Come, let us go down from the very start of from the very start we of of the canon. We encounter allusions to God and His counsel. Just whom the counsel consists of isn't stated. We have to determine that from other texts, and so. Uh, as we move through this, uh, you'll see in Isaiah 41 where God summons the foreign gods to show up in his court and prove they are truly our deities. Listen as God taunts and imagine him beckoning with his hand to those in his throne room. Present your case, Yahweh says. Bring forward your strong arguments. The king of Jacob says, let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place that we may consider them and know their outcome, that we may know you are Elohim, that we may anxiously look about us. And this is satire. It's, it nonetheless it exists as a conceptual reality for the prophet. The imagery served as a function against no gods and demons of Israel's neighbors who were imitation gods. So the council concept wasn't literally or a literary or a theological construct. It was a living element of Israel's religious system. In the Bible, the beings around Yahweh are Elohim. And I really, I, you got to really listen to this. And I'm having to lay a foundation for this because uh, these Elohim and, and what's going to come from this is really important. They are powerful entities. They're also holy because they're in the presence of the Holy One Himself. And so there's this awareness now that there's this great assembly. And I, I hope that you're starting to see this because this there's a great assembly of Elohim was in Elohim, capital Elohim's court. There are passages in the Bible that helps us to start to view a vision of this court. Uh, each vision, there are six passages in Exodus 24, 9 through 11, 1 Kings 22, 19 through 23, Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, Ezekiel 1 and also 10, and Zechariah 3, 1 through 5 with Daniel 7, 9 through 14. And here are the facts about these six visions. Each vision mentions or alludes to a throne. Whether it's resting on Mount Sinai or occupying the temple 
in Jerusalem or on lifted on the wings of the soaring uh, cherubim, Yahweh's throne is the seat of all government and is occupied by only one deity. Number two, they share a common theme, and that is the kingship of Yahweh. In Isaiah's vision, particularly, he says, my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of armies. Number three, in each vision, it refers to heavenly beings. Number four, the throne visions historically occur at crisis times when affirmation of God's kingship is urgent to the nation. For example, just after the Exodus birth of a nation, or when a king died, Isaiah 6, or when was about to die, 1 Kings 22, or when God was about to install new leaders, Zechariah 3, or when the people were thrust into exile and desperately needed to know that they weren't abandoned, Ezekiel 1. Think about this. Why is this podcast today happening based off of what I just read? Why do you think that, and I'm just one person that's speaking on behalf of the Father, but why do you think that we are listening to this right now? Well, according to the fourth point here, the throne visions occur in crisis times. Why is the Lord bringing out a revelation of throne room encounters and a divine counsel right now? Well, and I, and I can say this personally, when I go through what happened to Kara and I and our family, because I'm going to tell a story about this, I'm just setting the context right now, but you'll see why the Lord starts to bring revelation about this and why some of you maybe have been going through crises. I'm not sure always why the Lord supervenes and allows a crisis in our life, but I can tell you personally, our family, it seems like we've went from one traumatic experience to to the next, and it keeps drawing me into this revelation, the one in which I and privy to give to you today, um, hopefully to start to bring some definition, even if it's loose. And, you know, I already feel given this that some of you are going to say, oh, the material is so heavy. And some of you are going to say, oh, my goodness, that's speaking something to me that I need to go dig into and study. And that has meaning to me. And And I've really got to explore this material. Because... We are experiencing something right now where we're starting to see into a throne, that there's one who superintends a throne, uh, that also we're starting to realize that, wait a minute, he's not just the carpenter from Nazareth who comes to be and, and look like us and takes on a humble servant, but he's a king. Uh, who is over us and in charge of everything. And we're coming into a revelation of his sovereign right to govern and rule and to own everything. And that revelation is coming to many of you as well as our family. And then number three, you know, we're starting to understand that there's something going on around the throne and that there's been people like, you know, like Rick Joyner, uh, Mike Bickle, uh, you know, just there's many others that are having uh, experiences in throne room encounters. And there's probably many of you. And so you're just like, why am I having these experiences? Uh, Paul, of course, is speaking of it in, uh, you know, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, I believe, 
you know, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. And, and having third heaven revelation, you know, why is this? And because, again, point four, when the earth starts to go through crisis, the Lord will start allowing this to come into our understanding. Number five, he's also affirming his choice of human leadership. Now, you know, that that could be just irony uh, today, but, I mean, Moses, Aaron, the 72 elders ascend the mountain in Exodus 24, or when the post-exilic community was told that a Levite, not the son of the house of David, would oversee the restoration in Zechariah 3, speaking of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, or when in an apocalyptic future, the one that is, is coming upon us now, a Davidic son would have absolute rule, Daniel 7, not over Israel, but the whole earth, you know, speaking of the Lord, Jesus. And so when God starts to bring this vision to our purview, he's also affirming human leadership. He's saying, I'm bringing you into this revelation because I'm bringing an affirmation about future leadership. Now, I go back when I'm saying post-master build or post-leadership, you know, we're talking about a, another different capacity of leadership here. Uh, we're moving in, God's moving into, the Father's moving into the uh, convening of a divine council and to bring a rest, restorative movement on the earth. And number six, these visions, they are meant to confirm the authority of those to whom God granted access to his counsel. A true prophet is one who hears the word or plan of Yahweh in the sowed. Remember the sowed being those who have intimate access into the revelation and understanding uh, with the Father, uh, like the Lord had. And so, and then they're to deliver that out of the sowed and say, thus says the Lord, Jeremiah 23, 18 and 22. So out of this, you know, this convening of this divine council, someone is being sent with a message to say, hey, uh, the father, the big E Elohim, Abba is wanting you to hear about his restorative plan. And in, in the case of of this podcast, the Father is uh, sending his movement of his word down through us in language that is even hard to decipher sometimes. You know, go back to Black Hole and listen to it, that he utters things in dark sayings, making truth hard and making truth easy. Hard for those who, I mean, hey, you listen to this, you, you might just write it off. The language is way too complicated for me. But it's easy for, for you who have a humble heart. You're like, oh, it resonates with you. You'll say, oh, something touched me. It, I don't understand everything Carol's saying, but something's touching me. And, and something about what's being said is from the one I know, but uh, Lord, give me a capacity to understand. My, that's my prayer for you that God brings you into that capacity in the Hebrew Bible, it, there's an implication that King David had council access. Second Samuel 23 refers to the David as the man who was raised on high. Raised on high to where? Uh, to the council 
possibly, who, who said of himself, the Ruach of Yahweh spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. Second Samuel 1, 23, 1 through 2. Some men even called David God's angel or a messenger of the court. Second uh, Samuel fourteen seventeen and twenty. Also, in Second uh, Samuel nineteen and twenty seven, Jeremiah's rhetorical question on how to discern a true prophet, a prophet of God, who has stood in where the council, the sowed of Yahweh, um, that he should see and hear his word. Jeremiah twenty three eighteen. So David, David being a prophet who can discern and who has actually been brought in to stand in the council or sowed of Yahweh that he could see and hear his word is a real uh, watershed uh, in Israelite theology because the courtiers of the Ancient of Days, uh, they're sweeping into the royal hall as the clouds of heaven escorting someone who looks human and present him to the king and his assembly of a hundred million. Literally, that's that's what it says in Daniel 7, 9 through 14. Some commentators say that the son of a mortal man is the archangel Michael. But in the book of Daniel, divine beings are classified as bar Alon, or the sons of God, nor bar Enosh, son of man. The Aramaic Enosh connotes mortal man, as does Hebrew Enosh. Given the theological thrust of Daniel, this bar Enosh is a messianic son of David who receives the kingdom as a co-ruler with God, as outlined in Davidic theology. He is another Adam, one given authority over all of creation, a role originally intended for Adam in Genesis. The council imagery of Daniel 7 strikes deep and puts these lasting roots in Israel. Now, in uh, in Second Temple Jewish literature, like in the Pseudogriff, quite often a famous patriarch such as Enoch, Abraham, or Moses gains access to the heavenly king. In the parables or similitudes of First Enoch, a section of the book now usually dated near the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, we find visions of God and his Messiah, the Son of Man or Chosen One, sitting next to God. In other documents, angels such as Michael or a superior angel, Yah of God, are seen near God's throne. Uh, when you get into Qumran, Cave 4, it gave us a treasure trove of materials about what goes on in heaven during worship services conducted by seven angelic priests. The songs of the Sabbath sacrifice, 4Q400 through 407, are stunningly elaborate about this. In another document, we have the very words of Michael the archangel. I am counted among the gods, and my dwelling place is in the holy congregation. I am counted among the gods, and my glory is in the sun's of the king, 4Q491, fragment 11. In 11Q, Melchizedek is a heavenly priest who stands in for God as eschatological judge. As such, he is called Elohim. Just how the authors of these documents knew about the goings-on in the throne room is 
unstated. They don't declare themselves to be prophets or introduce their visions with a, the biblical idiom, Behold, I saw. A Septuagint manuscripts contain two interesting variants along these lines. In Isaiah 9.5, the messianic figure is called the messenger of the great council. Psalms 110.3 alludes to the divine origin of the Lord seated beside God. He is begotten by God among the splendor of the holy ones. And so now we look at council imagery in the New Testament. Psalms 110.1, Yahweh said to Adon, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The original Psalm dates from the monarchy period when the house of David flourished. Thus, for a thousand years or so before Yeshua, the idea that a son of David would sit next to God as co-ruler was well-known ideal among biblically informed Jews. Yet when Yeshua at his trial identified himself as the Adon or Lord of Psalms 110 and as Daniel, son of man, the high priest denounced him for blasphemy. But there was none, scripturally speaking. Throne visions. Acts 7. Stephen, remember that? And the glory of God and Yeshua, the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God. This image obviously reflects both Daniel 7, 13 through 14, the Ancient of Days, and Psalms 110.1, Yahweh and Adam. Multiple visions of the book of Revelation attest to the same reality. And every created uh, thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And that's Revelation five thirteen. Like the visions in the Hebrew Bible, these visions come at crisis moments when God or Messiah's lordship is put to the test. These are times of persecution at the hand of beast. The visions also validate the authority of Stephen and John as prophets. They're spokesmen of the council. And the visions affirm that the crucified and resurrected Yeshua does in fact have a place in heaven near the throne. These visions also have an anti-myth or anti-idolatry tone. Uh, the beings present in God's royal hall are not the objects of worship, only the Lamb. And the one who sits on the throne are to be honored. By all the heavenly beings themselves, there is no room even for human saints from ancient Israel or the new messianic family. Paul periodically alludes to the dual image, dual image of God and his Lord. Nearly every letter begins with a salutation, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord, Yeshua Messiah. He writes of how God raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places and put all things under his feet. Also, it's attested in the Gospel of John. Near God's mind, Yeshua, God's one and only, is said to have been in the bosom of the Father and is thus best able to explain him. The bosom houses the heart, which in Hebrew thinking is the seat of thought and planning, not emotion. God's sowed is usually reserved for his prophets, those who hear the council discussions and are dispatched to declare his word to his people, like in Amos 3.7, and enact his will, Psalms 103, 23, 27. 
but the counsel is also open to others. The soda of the Lord is for those who fear him. To them he makes known the deeper meanings and blessings of his covenant. Psalms 25:14. Job once lamented about days gone by when the friendship, which is the sowed or intimate counsel of God, was over my tent. Job said that in Job 24, excuse me, 29:4. If access to the sowed were given to Job and to the prophets, how much more to the Son of God? And so uh, you see this also uh, that it's in John, it's near God's mind, it's beside God. There's glory uh, related to it, uh, and there's God given authority. Now, um, there's a lot more that we can go into. Uh, in rabbinic Judaism and post-Nicene Christianity, but I'm I'm not going to get into that today uh, because of the purpose of this podcast. So what I want to do now, I want to tell you a story and uh, what happened with our family and how how this this uh, podcast today started to enter in. Uh, to my understanding back in May and I believe it was uh, May 20 it would have been May 23rd of 2014 and um, so this is what happened we we were at our house in Saluda and I believe it was a, a Friday morning Friday morning I'm woke up by the Lord and he says uh, to me um, I want you to understand that there are 72 thrones sites in the earth. And, um, and I said, okay, okay, Lord. I, he said there are 70 major, and now, now that I have a little bit better understanding, there are 70 major divine council seats. Okay, and there there are seventy that are Gentile. There is one in Israel, and then there is one throne that I sit upon, and so that's for a total of seventy-two. And I was told to watch this film that I I watched, and in the film, it had uh, a section in it. I mean, of course, I didn't know this, but I was told to watch this film that morning that had to do with 72 powers. And and I, w- I was really kind of taken off by that because I, you know, I didn't really have a framework at all for uh, what the Lord was saying to me then. And and I, you know, I had had to do like quite a bit of study and to understand uh, what that was about. And there's there are different perspectives, and I'm going to put some of this in the detail section for you because there's a lot of material here. But in Genesis 10, there's something called a table of nations, and these are the nations that spread out all over the earth, and and there were 70 of them, and there's a difference in scholarship between there being 70, 71, or 72. Uh, my my sense is is that there are, there are seventy Gentile. There was 
one major in Israel, and then there's again the the, the last one would be the one that the Lord convenes uh, His throne at. So seventy, just get this picture of seventy major thrones on the earth, one in Israel, and then one that the Lord sits on, and this is, makes up this uh, congregation or divine council that the Father uh, superintends and rules uh, the earth with. And so it's Friday morning and I uh, I have this encounter with the Lord about that. And so uh, Saturday, uh, the next day, uh, our family has breakfast together. And all of a sudden, like out of nowhere, a presence comes into my home. And at that point in my life, probably the worst uh, demonic attack our family had ever been under. My wife goes into our bedroom and lays down on the bed because she's basically stunned. And I go get on the couch and um, literally cannot move my mouth. My eyes, I would say, were set back. Uh, my body, I couldn't move my body at all. It was the most one of the most oppressed kind of uh, experiences I'd ever experienced. And now at this point, let's see, in 2014, we have, I believe, five of our children. Um, let's see, it was in May. So yes, uh, that would make uh, Leander. He's not yet been born. He'll be born later that year. So our sixth child, she's pregnant with Leander and uh, this attack comes and Elizabeth is our oldest at the time and let's see that would put her at I would say around nine years old and Elizabeth starts screaming and yelling and she says we're going to have to call an ambulance dad's going to die and um, he can't talk and so they're running around the house you know, from nine all the way down to two or three years old, screaming and yelling, uh, what are we going to do? And I, I have no physical ability to move. I am completely taken out. And my daughter, she says, they taught us to pray. Just like that, out loud. And she said, Jesus, Jesus, help us. And she says something to effect, they taught us to get a word from you, Lord, we need a word. And um, Elizabeth, she'll she'll move in like a word of knowledge. And she said, uh, the Lord's saying to me, and she's kind of saying this out loud, Revelation 12. And so she uh, she turns to Revelation 12. She grabs a Bible, turns to Revelation 12, and she starts to read this. Then a great sign appeared in the heaven, and a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and on her head was a crown of 12 stars, and she was pregnant and was screaming in labor pain, struggling to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and a huge red dragon that had seven heads and ten horns on its heads were seven diadem crowns. Now the dragon's tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them down to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child as soon as he was born. So the woman gave birth to a son, a man-child, who was going to rule over all the nations with an iron rod. 
Her child was suddenly caught up to the God into his throne, and she fled into the wilderness where a place had been prepared for her by God, and so she could be taken care of for 1260 days. War in heaven. War broke out in the heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but the dragon was not strong enough to prevail. So there was no longer any place left in heaven for him and his angels. So that huge dragon, the ancient serpent, the one called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, was thrown down to the earth and his angels along with him. And, you know, she's reading this and I'm knocked out. And I I mean, I can't even say the name of Jesus. I can't say anything. And my daughter's reading this and... And I'm like, why is she reading Revelation 12? And then she says this, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the ruling authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters and the one who accuses him day and night before our God has been thrown down. But they overcame him. By the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much that they were not even afraid to die. And when she read this verse, therefore, you heavens rejoice, and all you who reside in them, but woe to the earth and sea, because the devil has come down to you, and he is filled with terrible anger, for he knows that he has but a little time. So the dragon realized that he had been thrown down to the earth. He pursued the woman who had been given birth to the man-child. And I, uh, instantly when she said salvation belongs and power and the kingdom of God and the ruling authority of his Christ has now come, instantly that whatever presence was in our home instantly left. I was instantly reanimated, able to get up and move around. Kara was uh, back uh, intact. And my nine-year-old was able to proclaim the word of the Lord over our family and take out with the word of God whatever had uh, come to attack Kara and I. Now, there's a lot that can be said from this. And again, I'm going to put up works for you to, to look at. Uh, because uh, T. Austin Sparks has um, some of the greatest, I believe, writings on the Manchild uh, Company and Revelation 12. There's other great writers on it, but I would say he's probably the one I feel like is the most closely aligned with what is meant in Revelation 12. And as many of you know that I believe it was September around that, 2017, that there will be a physical sign that September 23rd, I think it was, that'll happen in the heavens, uh, that many in the body of Christ were uh, visualizing and were seeing this this picture of Revelation 12 appearing in the heavens. And and so I uh, that happens. I'm like, the, the day before that is the 72 thrones. And, and, what I, and I'm just going to just come off the line with this and, and say this to you that I had, I was under the understanding that God, the, our Father, was looking for the sons of men because of what Jesus has done for us by the blood that is shed on the earth and 
applied in the heavens at the mercy seat, that he was in this last hour going to feel those 70 throne sites in the Gentile nation with the sons of men, human agents of this order called the Melchizedek order. And that he was qualifying us right now in, in the, the body of Christ to come into that place. You know, many of us going through trials and afflictions uh, to uh, sit in those positions. And that uh, the one would be, I believe it's David, that will sit in the one in Israel. And then the Lord, of course, sits on his throne and he rules, uh, you know, the world and the whole cosmos and, and is uh, going to be with us shortly. I mean, you know, the whole function of this podcast, again, is Acts 3.21. Jesus is retained in the heavens until the restoration of all things. And I've laid that out for you already in one of the other podcasts. But there's a retention on Jesus until everything is restored. And I believe what the Father's looking for is to fill all these sites uh, with with us. That he's uh, preparing to put... uh, his kingdom together and we're all being prepared right now to reign and rule with him um and and that that's what's going on well the next day is sunday and uh we had invited into mz hop through a relationship with steve scroggs senior uh naboth from uganda to come in and speak now naboth is such a godly godly man and uh, actually is a prince, literally, um, ethnically, in his bloodline over in uh, Uganda. And he comes into uh, the fire department that morning, and he's you know very close to the father, and he looks at me, and he says to me, just straight away, he says, David, and my name's not David, you know, my name's Carol. He says, you've been wrestling with Goliath, have you not? And I said, oh, Naboth. I mean, he said, the, I was like, what What are you saying? He says, oh, the Lord told me, uh, showed me this morning. He said, uh, you've been dealing with uh, our enemy, uh, Goliath, the Satan, that he came and visited you yesterday in your home. Uh, you've been, uh, you went through something yesterday, didn't you? And I said, you know, and Naboth knows nothing. And so I, you know, I'm sitting there just sort of flabbergasted because he has no idea what just happened the day before. Well, Naboth gets in there and preaches and gives this word to us. And he ends up preaching on David and Goliath and uh, and gives this word to our meeting. And, and then we give him a word because there had been an attempt in Uganda through uh, President Barack Obama to steal the blessing of U.S. Uh, help over there because Uganda's president had made a decision not to support the covenant-breaking mentality that was going on in that nation. And so he wasn't going to support it. And because he wasn't going to support uh, covenant breaking in marriages and relationships and in the way we handle our children president obama had was seizing uh not allowing uh visa entry into our nation and also was seeking 
to exploit that nation. And man, we got up there, our team did, with Naboth and said, Naboth Vineyard will not be taken by Ahab from a Jezebel spirit and came into agreement with the Lord that they would hold the ground and that the U.S. blessing of finance would still pour into Uganda to help that nation because they had stood on covenant. And so that had happened that morning. And it was a powerful meeting. You know, that Naboth's vineyard was not going to be stolen by the enemy and destroy that country and those people. So I, you know, I come out of that Sunday meeting and I was really left in quite a sort of like shock and awe, but because I'm like, okay, you know, Friday morning you told me about the 72 thrones. Then you confirmed it through a film that you told me to watch, which I had no idea would have a representation of the 72. Then by Saturday, we have a literal encounter with possibly the accuser. And my daughter speaks Revelation 12 about being cast down and the powers being cast out of their throne seats uh, because they're not going to rule. Uh, We're meant and are seated in heavenly places in, in Christ. Uh, we're coming into a place where we're going to receive the thrones that there are many of us in the body of Christ that are uh, are, are going all the way with the Father and we uh, long to follow Him. And, and then a nine-year-old can speak the Word of God and remove the accuser. And then Naboth is, has no idea and confirms the story the very next day. And so what a weekend. You know, I don't know if your weekends go like that. <laughs> I don't know if you you have experiences like that, but that was that was the weekend of May uh, May twenty fifth, twenty fourteen for us. Well, let's uh, let's close. This has been a full podcast, and I I really want to challenge you. Please take time with this. Um, all the details are going to be there. You, you can go into the details section in iTunes. I'm going to have all these works there for you, uh, the notes for you. Uh, please consider taking time with this and saying, Father, what are you saying here? And, and, and maybe for some of you, you've really been encountered by this because you have some like experiences and things. And, you know, it may be that the Lord is uh, preparing you. Uh, some of you may be going through. Uh, severe trials and and you've been trials because you said yes to him not trials because you're disobeying but trials because you're obeying and you're trying to understand why am i walking through what i am with my family with my finances with my friendships uh, with my faith you know uh, i feel like i'm in trials uh, you know from every kind coming assaulting me and you're trying to make sense out of it. some of you are actually even homeless you know, you've lost homes over this. Some of you've lost land. You've lost cars. You've lost your possessions because you wanted to say yes to them, but you're trying to sort out your life. And I hope that this will be an encouragement to you. You may be being qualified for the sowed of God, uh, the divine counsel, uh, to move into a meeting space where you can commune with him. Let's pray. Jesus, we give you all the honor and all the glory that you're due.
you are the most high. You are the one who is to be preeminent above all men, all things, all of what you have created. We we submit to your lordship and to your authority. We submit to your integrity and to your authenticity. Or if there's anyone even listening to this podcast that doesn't know you, just pray you move on their heart right now. Just move on them, Lord. Maybe they're just like overwhelmed. I mean, who could know this? Uh, there's so much to grow up into where it seems so overwhelming. I just, but I haven't even said yes. I haven't even come under submission to your right to rule my life and I want to make my life right with you right now I want to confess that my life is not lined up with you that I I want to take courage to say I want to make you Lord of my life and for many of us that that are listening who have we've give up everything for the Lord we we've said yes but struggling daily I just pray that today today and that you would just check a yes. Just check another yes. Just maybe the obstacle you're facing is not as big as you think it is. But just check a yes on, Lord, I want to worship you and I want to find you and I want to follow you wherever you lead me. In your name we pray. Amen.
And our eyes have been on 